o'clock, uh, and I guess it's time to start. So thank you very much for coming. It's, uh, I think, uh, almost, the, almost the end of our program. We have another set of uh, discussions after this hour, and then basically some readings and screenings uh, and our special event for the rest of the evening. So thank you so much for being with the festival for all these days. For those of you who have and for those who are new, uh, thank you again for being here. Um, both uh, Sumit Mandel and Rebecca Carl have, have already spoken. They've been on panels. Rebecca gave uh, a lecture as part of the four lectures that we uh, highlighted at the festival this year. Uh, Sumit's been on, um, uh, he's been on several things, including a book launch uh, yesterday. So the, the topic of the conversation is make history great again. And uh, when we thought of it, and because it's largely part of the, the theme of the festival, um, it, it's sort of an echo of the kinds of nationalist rhetoric, the mostly uh, right-wing and populist rhetoric about making the nation great again. And so make America great again, or, and so on and so forth, all of which requires on the part of those political leaders to deploy uh, histories, and particular kinds of histories sometimes narrowly cast in terms of a single ethnic group leading the, the nation and so on. Um, but we also see in other ways an invention of the past, attack on historians. All that is happening in the contemporary world. Now the two people before you are professional historians, meaning they, they work in uh, universities, they work within the discipline of history in, a, in a, as rigorous a fashion um, as is expected of them. Rebecca Carl, of course, and you could read the biography, she's got a, many books to her name, and uh, I was first introduced to her work um, 15 years ago when I was in the Philippines, and reading about how the late Qing dynasty, which is, I guess, the last Chinese dynasty, uh, the intellectuals of that dynasty were looking out at the world and learning from other third world struggles. And, and I was very interested in what was happening in the Philippines because I was there uh, to some, in some sense. Uh, understand the Philippines. And so that was when I, and I never thought I'd ever meet her in person. So it's wonderful when the author of a book leaps out and presents themselves as real human beings. Uh, and in the case of Rebecca, uh, a very funny individual with, with, as well as very deep and profound in her thinking about the world. Um, Sumit uh, is an, actually an old friend. So there's a bit of nepotism, but clearly there's good nepotism, there's bad nepotism. This is a good form of nepotism. Uh, he has a book available at the festival or in uh, Hikayat Bookstore, which is about the Arabs of, of the Indonesian world, uh, or people of Arab descent, or, or the complex meanings of what it is to be Arab. Um, uh, he's uh, um, someone I've known who's also engaged with the Malaysian public around issues of uh, how we've forgotten, because of the narratives of history that are so racialized, uh, that are cast in terms of ethnically identified actors uh, that we forget the kinds of, the forms of solidarity between those groups and in fact the complexities of identity from the past. So there was a lot of writing that Sumit did, um, you know, 20 years ago or so that reflected his interest in bringing that history uh, to, into the public sphere in, in ways that would capture much more general audience. So with, with those uh, very brief and opening, rem uh, opening remarks, for people who have um, a body of work behind them, I thought maybe what we could do first 
before we launch into this discussion is to get them to say a little bit about their work as historians, why they, why they took this up and, and how in many ways it's prepared them or, or not to deal with some of the contemporary challenges of history as it's uh, deployed in, in kind of political rhetoric and such. So I want to ask you, Rebecca, first uh, to tell us a little bit about yourself with regard to this question. Uh, thank you very much for that kind introduction. It's always nice to write something and then meet a reader, so thank you. <laughs> um, yes, a reader in the real flesh as opposed to as a, uh, as a, as a, as a ticker on the, on the market, in the market, marketing of the book. But um, I actually became a historian by accident. Um, I was uh, teaching in, uh, for various other very accidental reasons. I was teaching in Hunan province uh, in, early, in the mid-1980s, uh, uh, teaching English uh, at a university, one of the first group of um, non-Chinese to be uh, employed by the Ministry of Education of that province. And um, they, uh, I ran into a large number of Filipinos who had uh, fled Marcos's Philippines and been resettled, uh, where they were, they were Marxists, and they uh, had resettled in Mao's China in the uh, 1960s and 1970s. And by the time I met them in the 1980s, they had become slightly disillusioned with China, in fact, quite disillusioned with China in many, many ways. But I became, through my uh, years of uh, talking to them, uh, and this was also in the process of when the, uh, when the Marcoses were overthrown, when the Kino People's Revolution came along and so on, I became very interested in finding out, in thinking about, and finding a way through how uh, Chinese intellectuals, Chinese uh, what the relationship between Chinese and the non-Western world was. What, at what point? At when? At what point in the modern period? Not as a diasporic problem. Not as a problem of. Uh, not as an issue of, of overseas migration and so on. But as an intellectual problem. At what point did the uh, modern non-Western world impinge on Chinese consciousness, uh, in some sort of substantive way, and help them reformulate? a sense of the world in which they lived. Um, and I'm sorry, we're like oriented this way, so I'm not looking over here. Um, but I, I do recognize that there's also a, a, uh, yeah. an, an audience Yeah, it'd be nice if you move over, so yes. maybe then. Um, but, um, but so I, I, several years later, I ran into a uh, professor of Chinese history at Duke University. His name was Arif Dirlik. And he was, um, he, he's now, he died a couple, two years ago, but he, um, he was a Turk uh, who had gone to the United States on a Fulbright Fellowship to study phys nuclear physics and had become interested in the Chinese Revolution instead. And so he was one of the very few non-Western uh, scholars of China in uh, the United States and when I was telling him about my encounter with these Filipinos, he said, well, you know, why don't you look at the late Qing and uh, you might find something interesting there. 
He didn't know what I was going to find there, but he said, you know, Sun Yat-sen traveled around, and, you know, other people traveled around, and you might find something interesting. So my first book, uh, so I decided to become a historian because Arif was really persuasive. Um, and then Duke gave me money, uh, and, uh, and then 1989 had happened in China, and it became uh, a pretty good bet to leave China at that point. Uh, and so I um, just, I became a historian, uh, and uh, my first book comes out of a series of these um, accidental encounters, and it was a, these were fateful encounters for me because they were also a way of reorienting the way I saw the world and to think about how instead of the mainstream of Chinese history is always written about the Chinese and the West, two, as I will mention uh, very briefly, you know, these are two very incommensurable, the West doesn't actually exist as a thing, and uh, China and the West are incommensurable categories of analysis. But they, uh, but China versus the West, and sometimes with Japan. And I thought there has to be a bigger story there. There has to be another kind of story. And so I, I named my first book, as my sisters and my, my, my parents always uh, laughed at me, very immodestly. Uh, called staging the world, you know, and um, and it is an incredibly immodest uh, title, um, but it was really I for me the world then was the non-Western world, and I wanted to think about, and so that book really launched me in a way into history, into the byways of history that have now become very mainstream forms of 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 the historian's craft, but at the time I was doing it. Uh, in the very beginning, 20-some years ago, it was, uh, was still very new. I, I want to just quickly follow up on, on that, because at that time when I said I read your article, I was also looking through archives, and a lot of digital archives, including the China Quarterly. Uh, and what struck me with the China Quarterly was they seemed to put a lot of effort into looking at the fate of certain intellectuals, uh, especially those seemed to be targeted by the Communist Party, and so on and so forth. And they kind of followed that. And, and I remember downloading all this stuff and because it all since disappeared on a hard drive that went bust. Okay, but Rebecca, why intellectuals? So many other ways to look at why, why the intellectuals an aperture through which to view China. Well, for me, I mean, I, this is just a quirk of my own, my own uh, bias, I guess. I'd, I'm really interested in concepts and ideas, and I'm really interested in trying to work through not just conceptual, how, not, in linguistic, not merely in linguistic terms, which is very important, how certain words get translated and so on, but what they come to mean, how they come to signify at a particular time and in a particular place. And that, that, that is not about influence, because influence, I mean, it's about, it's about how people can start to, start to understand different ways of, different modalities of, of, of learning about the world or learning about things. And um, so for me, maybe that parallels the way I learned about the world, <laughs> but, um, but uh, for me, intellectual history and how, 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 how the world not only the world as the globe, but the world that we live in, our everyday world, our worlds, 
uh, how we conceptualize them, how we think them to me is one of the most important aspects of studying anything. And so that for me was a really um, important entree into things. Um, it is also true that I actually have no patience for sifting through very, very dull archives. So <laughs> I was, uh, I, I like reading um, intellectual works and so that's where I found myself. Because there's a tremendous coherence in the worldviews that are produced by intellectuals that uh, makes the task or takes the task in a different direction as opposed to what an ethnographer might do and so on and so forth. Okay, so if we turn to Sumit now uh, to give us also a sense of your, your, your entry into the world of, of writing and, and you know, grappling with historical questions. Thank you. Um, when I was about 12, a salesman arrives at the house in Klang, my parents' house, and he has these two sets of encyclopedias. It's five-volume book on the explorers of the world, and a, something like a 24-volume encyclopedia on the sciences. My parents, uh, Malaysian middle classes, what do you think they thought I should buy, or they should buy for me? <laughs> So I pleaded for the explorers of the world, though now I realize it was an entirely West Europe-centered view of the world, right? But it was still very exciting at that point. You start by making mistakes, and then you learn to correct your view of the world. And um, of course, my father, um, um, uh, a general practitioner, very rational in his thinking, um, thought, no, you know, that, those are things you can leave, be, you, you can do that later, you need, to, you need to buck up on your sciences. So I get this 24 volume um, book of, uh, on the sciences, which I think I barely touched over the years. But I had to go, that, that budding historian had to go into the closet for a long period. And then um, the pressures in our our growing up, my brothers and I, two other brothers, on shaping our education were very strong. And I'm mentioning this in uh, this level of biographical detail to kind of relate to the difficulties sometimes in, in choosing your own path in um, some of the societies of this part of the world, I think. And, um, and in part because I can't help making reference to the previous uh, panel that happened previously which is very um, um, widely attended um, on a major event uh, uh, um, in Malaysian history, uh, it, it, the, the, the political crisis that led to racialized violence in 1969. So uh, some of the questions there are not, and, and some, people, some of the panelists tried to suggest, some of the questions there are not sort of they don't have single factor answers and they are really very complex and some there was a real strong uh, uh, searching for history the need to look at history and look at arguments about history in that panel and i want to suggest that there are also choices that are being made by families and this society about history not just by states although i think we'll be end up we'll end up talking about states and and I can only tell this story now because at that point it was a lot about, about struggles and about internal squabbles within my own family. But 
but what actually makes, uh, happens for me then to make the break was really a, re a kind of radical decline in my academic performance. I'm in the US and I make the decision that I can't carry on this way. Uh, and I tell Mike, I have a, a call, call my parents. And my mother says to me in Bengali, even girls don't study history anymore. And really, really, she's, she's, she's being very cool and very, very much in, again, the spirit of her time, right? She comes out of the Indian, Indian National Independence Movement, leaning towards the left. You know, she turns out to be a foot-stomping radical, you know, in uh, Calcutta where she grew up. And, you know, she wanted her sons to be doing much more than the options that she had, you know. So the girls don't, so she did history. So, I, again, you know, to look at the ways in which um, uh, our understandings of the past are, are frequently uh, erased or, 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 or our, our urgings are uh, erased. Anyway, I made that break finally, and I ended up at a university, um, and uh, I befriended a scholar, um, I be became a student of a scholar named William Roth, who wrote a pioneering book on uh, Malay nationalism. And uh, he, finally there was somebody cultivating my interest in history, and uh, there was a university environment, and my, my mother was fine with her son being a girl, or not, or, you know, even though girls don't study history anymore, she was fine with it. And, um, and um, it's also interesting why they were posted. So for my mother, it was about, um, really, in, in, her, in her times, being a feminist and coming out of the national independence movement, you know, what do you do that's empowering? It's interesting to think that history wasn't empowering for her. For my father, it was like, how am I going to afford this, you know, if you're going to be one of those kinds of people, and he's recalling a past from India where if you became a historian, you'd have to have wealth. You'd have to be someone, that, you know, who owns tons of uh, property and you can earn an income from it and you can sit back and do history. I think some of the history we'll be describing uh, in the panel is quite, quite something else. So my, for my father, I learned to understand he just didn't have a way of grappling with it. So maybe I spent too much time in the biography. Let me, um, as is the case with Rebecca, and I mean, men, you know, we come with interests, but then we, those interests evolve in conversation with your, your supervisor. And my supervisor was very keen on Islam. I was very keen on Islam. I was coming to uh, the study of history as a non-Muslim in Malaysia. I wanted to study about Muslim society. And uh, he proposed, you know, these Arab communities in Singapore and in Indonesia and so on. And I was going to study a reformist movement in Indonesia called Al Irshad. But I ended up doing uh, not what the direction that he he was encouraging, uh, which was looking at the, Islam, the the kind of language of Islam, the conceptual language in some ways, and uh, and uh, and the social struggles around. Uh, this reformist movement, I ended up uh, really trying to understand who these people were. And um, I wanted to end with that. So I ended up looking at who these communities of Arabs were. And I wanted to end with that to say that um, 
I ended up really spending a lifetime after that trying to understand identity, trying to understand complex ways by which identity is constituted historically. But I'm also uh, uh, fascinated by how racialized forms, right, simple notions of identity that this country, for instance, is made up of Chinese, Indians, Malays, and others. Right? How this becomes appealing, why does this gain traction on a, on a much more serious level? So we, we can talk about that as we proceed. But I also realized, I partly mentioned the biography because as I've traveled from here to Indonesia, to New York, and then to Indonesia, and, 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 and now my perspective uh, is expanded to include the Indian Ocean, I realized that um, I, I, am, um, I am struggling with questions that Malaysians struggle with. It's questions of race, questions of um, how does a country with such immense diversity and interconnected trans-ethnic connections be ruled and understood by such simple parameters as Indian, Chinese, Malay, and others. So we'll talk some more along those lines. Okay, so Rebecca, so you know, one, one of the things that uh, Sumit suggests is that you know, identities are constituted through certain histories, right? But there's, the reverse also is in some sense true, right? Identities, that, that identities are constituted through certain histories or the, or the um, historical narratives. And that's where the, the import, I mean, the, the main discussion we want to take it is that it's not just you as a professional historian that's creating history. It's the politician that talks about history, that recalls a moment, that, you know, does a, a short spiel on, you know, Malaysia in, in, in five minutes kind of thing. Does, how do you, when you, do you look out for this stuff, that the politician who's producing history or the state that's producing histories, and how do you kind of negotiate that? Was that also, uh, for you, uh, a subject of interest? Um, well, of course, China, all states um, are narrativized themselves through history. <laughs> so as, you know, the inevitable sort of endpoint of certain kinds of histories. And so narratives of history play an enormously huge role in the state constitution of itself as legitimate and so on. And China, of course, is no different from all other states in that regard. I mean, I'm an American working in uh, Chinese history, and so I also have um, had to contend uh, with uh, Cold War histories American Cold War histories of anti-communism and anti-Chinese and, and so on, uh, where uh, mainstream histories have in the United States of, uh, that, that come from Cold War, from the needs of uh, US policy, have been extraordinarily reductionist, uh, also in service of states. So I've, I've sort of, um, tried to navigate between two, two forms of state narrative, one which is the Chinese state narrative of um, inevitability either of uh, the post-Mao order or the American uh, uh, version of, uh, of, of anti-communist Cold War um, state necessity. Um, 
I don't know that I have a consistent answer for, uh, I mean, I'm a rebel at heart, so I wouldn't, I don't really love mainstream histories, whether they're narrated by states or by mainstream historians in any case. And so I tend to come at certain kinds of questions. I, I've alternated in my career, okay? I started with a very, very academic book about this third world, uh, this non-Western world thing. And then I wrote a, a relatively accessible, relatively narratively driven book about Mao Zedong. A more conventional topic you cannot get, okay? That's a very conventional topic. I then went back to do a whole bunch of translations of uh, an anarcho-feminist from early 20th century. I did a bunch of other translations. And then I wrote another extraordinarily academic book about economic philosophy and China in the 1930s. And then I just finished writing a very accessible book about China's modern revolutions which, again, a more conventional topic you cannot move into. So I've tried to move in my own work and in my own thinking between uh, a state, uh, let me just say that the, the, the conventional topics that I've written on have been written, of course, in an extremely unconventional way. And so I, I try to alternate in the ways that I do my work and the ways in which I think about history and I write history either for a larger public or for an academic audience in ways that defamiliarize what might be familiar. You know, one of the uh, things, of course, that's happening with states is that they don't keep to their own histories. They shift it, and, of course, uh, and it's probably a little too easy to uh, lampoon uh, the, the co communist uh, governments of the 20th century famously airbrushing people out of portraits or airbrushing photographs to the extent that they, they were developing those techniques. What do you do when the state itself is constantly shifting? What, what, what does the public do? I mean, do you have a sense of uh, these, how these shifting narratives actually affect people? I mean, how do people, in a sense, understand these, uh, these narratives? Well, I mean, of course, states like China are, are very much uh, control textbooks and, you know, the narrative of history that, that gets included in textbooks and so on. And each generation, and it's not even a generation like a 30-year generation, it's like five-year generations, you know, each, each time they revise the textbooks, they put new things in, they take other things out. I mean, it was once upon a time, Lu Xun, the writer, the modern writer, Lu Xun, was all the rage and so on. And then all of a sudden he became too critical at for, and so now he's been reduced to like a paragraph. Uh, it used to be that Mao's China, Mao Zedong was uh, uh, all important in Chinese history. And now he's been reduced to um, half a chapter in uh, high school textbooks and so on. And so, you know, these, these uh, it, one doesn't, um, I, I think that the contemporary generation of uh, either high school or uh, college students, those of whom, uh, those of, uh, the ones who are actually interested in history no longer get their history from textbooks because they understand that textbooks are in fact very malleable and are not, uh, are not the place where you find, uh, you know, certain kinds of pasts. 
what has become very popular in China today and as alarmingly popular, in fact, and kind of comically popular, have been the huge has been the huge boom in televised series on historical themes, and so that you have now huge. Um, you know, 100 and 200 episode long uh, 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 sagas of, you know, uh, the, the, the emperors and harems and concubines and, you know, and, and eunuchs and this, that, and the next, uh, which now serve as, I mean, they are, they are very accurate in, in many of the visual details so that the, the hairstyles and the, 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 the costumes and the clothing and so on are all very, very um, uh, meticulously researched. But then, of course, the stories are, you know, are telev for television. And so, um, but it is extraordinary how many students I get into my classroom now from China whose uh, access to history is, and whose exposure to history is either the dry textbooks that they have learned not to, not to really trust, or TV, which they paradoxically do trust. And so um, it's, you know, what teaching against that is, you know, and, and writing against that sort of right. uh, trend. Is. Uh, so this is interesting, because I see Kannan, in, 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 who's from India, and I, 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 I understand very, in a very sketchy way, that Doordarshan, the uh, national television, uh, produced uh, the Mahabharata series, uh, and that in some ways that informed um, the Hindu nationalist uh, narrative that's now gone from television, into, as it were, into real life. And, yeah. and maybe we can come to... Yeah? And Ramayana. Um, so we could come to that actually in the Q&A, but I, I want to turn to you, Sumit, precisely. So, okay, so when you look at Malaysia and when you were writing and trying to kind of work against what you, I might use the, the rather clumsy expression, the dominant narrative, you were working against what you, was, what you felt inadequate in the telling of, of history. Um, how did you come to that sense? How did you start to um, strategize your own, in a discursive sense, how do you strategize against uh, what you saw out there? Okay, I think I might um, speak ar around, speak by referring to Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia, um, and following up on the question of the state as well, and then return more precisely to your, to your question about strategy. So in dealing with questions about identity, r racialized forms of identity, um, the state figures perhaps more so than, than other questions in history. And what we find that's a familiar theme in all these countries, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, is that racial forms or racialized politics is something uh, of a colonial legacy, right? So. That's something that's uh, widely understood, is taught in schools. And of course, there's also truth to it. I was going to say that it was good to have fake histories in the little abstract as a way for us to, to get into the discussion. But I, I think uh, rather than fake histories, state-centered histories, or because I think you, you bring up, when we start talking about fake histories, then we start talking about the uh, question of authenticity. And it's not that state histories are inauthentic, but they are particular narratives, right? And so, yes, 
racial categories are a colonial legacy. But what's really forgotten and what consumes my, my book, Becoming Arab, and also some of my, my work, is how at the moment of independence, when there is so much promise, and when constitutional, constitutionally and in terms of the politics of the moment, we are looking at potential equality among citizens and so on, you have in Indonesia the beginnings of a kernel of anti-Chinese politics that then develops into a violent form um, by the late 60s. Of course, in the context of the, the geopolitics of the time, we can go into the details a bit later, but, and then you have in Malaysia, um, a decade or so after independence, uh, this, this crucial moment, 69, 70, and then the, uh, the creation of a kind of racialized hierarchy and a bureaucracy um, that, that uh, contravenes really some, some of the, the spirit of the, in, the politics of early independence, right? And now, but the narrative that con that's uh, constantly focused on is the colonial narrative. Now, in Singapore, it's interesting, right? Because what the Singapore state does is it doesn't really deny the continuity from the colonial state. In fact, it's celebrating uh, the 200th anniversary of the founding of Singapore by a British gentleman, English gentleman. Uh, this is obviously contested. Singapore has a much longer history in this region. But anyway, that's, that's Singapore's story. Because So what they say is, um, and this is quite, this is an official narrative. Well, the British mishandle race, you know, we will do it better. So we will racialize the society and we will run it better uh, by creating ra a racialized form of e e you know, equal citizenship. So let's put them aside for a moment. But in Indonesia and Malaysia, there's, a, there's this ambiguity. And um, in the Indonesian case, that th these kinds of narratives uh, of ex um, independence and independent uh, equal citizenship have the contradiction of keeping Chinese out for a long period of time, and certainly throughout the throughout the um, rule of the authoritarian um, president Suharto, um, and then at the end in '98 when when Suharto steps down. We have we we actually have the emergence of uh, fresh narratives, new narratives about inclusion um, that are, and, and I want to use that to come back to strategy. But in Malaysia, though, it's never been uh, a simple enough story. The levels of exclusion are not uh, as extreme as in Indonesia, and the the narratives of inclusion and exclusion, to put it simply. Uh, work well together. So for me, what has been important, what drove me to think about trans-ethnic solidarities when I returned after finishing my PhD was the feeling that many people were very consumed by a racialized lens. And that's not just the state. I thought activists, intellectuals, um, even if they resisted the state, weren't able to see the connectivities. So that's when, for me, the historical um, um, understanding of, say, Arab, Arab identities, which were immensely Creole, immensely connected to, to Chineseness, to Malayness, um, 
I started to deploy those kinds of, that kind of knowledge to try to tell a different story, but not by dismissing racialized narratives, by suggesting that um, um, the work of doing, of providing other narratives is important. And I want to say one final thing, um, and I maybe at a later stage provide concrete examples of how um, um, state narratives have been, if not dismantled, at least challenged effectively. Um, the many movements arose in in, Singapore, uh, in 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 Indonesia, and I think more recently in Malaysia, which have uh, taken up the role of rethinking the past, and um, they may not have gained as much uh, of a public profile here. But I'll just mention Imagine Malaysia here. In Indonesia, it's uh, Jaringan Kerja Budaya, and um, they are also. Um, really rethinking historical narratives and questioning uh, uh, categories like race. I mean, Singapore, the, the bicentenary celebrates 1819. Now, apparently, they've taken it back to 1299 or something. It's a new date with Sangnula Utama coming. So, you, you, you know, you, you do the, basically the same thing. But, um, Rebecca, you mentioned in your lecture and in our breakfast meeting, uh, your interest in what you call insurgent history. And I, I imagine that's also a strategy. So, um, could you give us a sense of what that means? Yeah, um, I, I'm interested uh, when I talk about insurgent histories, and I've just started to think of it in those terms, um, but uh, uh, because uh, I'm interested in histories that retrieve moments of the past uh, when the future can be imagined otherwise. And so, uh, so um, moments at which everything's up in the air. There is no, where, uh, that's why I like the late Qing, when the Qing dynasty is falling and what happens next is absolutely unclear. And uh, there, it, it hasn't been closed down by a settled state narrative yet. Um, it gets closed down and then reopened uh, repeatedly, but, um, and so, uh, you know, I actually, you know, to be very clear and very honest, I'm, uh, I've, I've been, I, my, my approach has been uh, uh, derived from uh, a, a Marxist understanding of the problem of, um, of capitalism, of social relations of production, of uh, uh, class relations and so on, not in any rigid sort of way because the rigidity of a vulgar Marxist analysis to me is a death to all history. But um, I take, um, I, I've, I've, in my recent work, I've worked through the problem of repetition rather than, I mean, historians like to talk about continuities and they, then they like to trace a moment of origin, you know, here's a date and from this date onwards everything, you know, does something else or whatever, or, you know, the, 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 the present is set upon a path. And what I do instead is think about the problem of how, um, you know, of course, Marx wrote about tragedy and farce, right? You know, history happens first as tragedy and second time as farce. And I know I don't, I'm not interested in tragedy or far, in genres like that. But what I am interested in is the problem of history as repetition rather than as continuity. And so, 
in a recent book of mine called Magic of Concepts, what I trace, for example, is how certain questions about Chinese social structure, Chinese uh, historical categories, and so on, appear in the 1930s in the context of, and th 1940s, in the context of the collapse of what looks like the global collapse of capitalism uh, with the financial crisis, the Great Depression, and so on and so forth, and how they reappear in the 1980s almost verbatim, almost exactly in the same way, having been through the Maoist period and out the other side as a con as a, in the crisis of socialism. And, how to, how, and, and to me, this is not a continuity, this is a repetition. And how to think that repetition with a difference, of course, because one is about thinking your way out of uh, the crisis of capitalism, which yields in the 1940s the answer, socialism. Whereas by the time you get to the 1980s, how do you deal with the crisis in socialism? Aha, capitalism, okay? And so it's, it's a repetition within a vast difference, and it's a vast difference not only because China is now autonomous and independent and has its own, its own state and so on, and is no longer semi-colonial, is no longer subjected to Japanese occupation or any of those other things, and, and it's been out the other side of socialism and has become a unified, unitary polity and so on and so forth of a sort, of course, through certain kinds of repressions of Xinjiang and Tibet and you know so on and so forth that we can talk about or just we can know about. But so I'm, I'm interested in these moments. And so my last book was really a, an oscillation between the 30s posing of the problems and the 80s reposing of the same problems that come to absolutely diametrically opposed uh, uh, solutions. Uh, and to me, that's not about uh, skipping the socialist period. It's about taking that socialist period very seriously and how we can think about the crisis that then, the global crisis that then uh, was in the 30s and 40s in capitalism and then the global crisis of socialism in the 80s and 90s. And so for me, the strategy is, to, is a methodological one on one level, uh, and I take my cue then from the 18th Brumaire of Marx and the, and the problem of repetition in, uh, in, in, in as, as history, history as repetition. Um, and then uh, I try to think through what that means, how we can think uh, history, how we can think about uh, uh, our, our present and futures in ways that uh, don't repeat the mistakes of the past, but that, take into, that acknowledge that certain questions have emerged in the past and yielded alternative answers to what we have today. Okay, because uh, we in Malaysia know everything about repetition. You know, we we have this, we are now living in a moment of possibility, uh, only to find ourselves cast 20 years back, where the main antagonists are the same. So, okay, so we know repetition deep in our souls, um, and it's and it's tragic. But I don't mean it in the way that Marx means it. But okay. Yeah. I mean repetition as an opportunity to think otherwise, rather than repetition as always repeating the same mistakes over and over. Okay, and so over not Groundhog again. Day. No, Groundhog day, day by okay. a long stretch. No, okay. for me it's repetition about how to acknowledge that the past allowed for different kinds of answers uh, than what we have in the present. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you a, a, a much more con concrete. Uh, 
a question about, or a question that's not necessarily concrete otherwise, it's about the, the way historians might intervene in the public sphere. So you, you create these works, they circulate, but they circulate perhaps in, in, in smaller circles, right? Individuals like myself and all that who might read your work. Um, Sumit, I know you, you've done some stuff directed towards a larger public. What, what has to go into it to, to compete with the power of the state either in producing narratives or the power of charismatic politicians who are also uh, generating narratives? What does, can, a, can a historian do to push back or to complexify the stories that we need to understand if we're going to negotiate the present? Oh, sorry. I think, um, let me tell you how I ended up um, writing for a broader public. It was um, from the feeling that the university didn't really give me the kind of um, uh, conversations uh, that sustained me intellectually. So uh, in the mid-90s, and so as a historian looking around, in being interested in thinking about the past in different ways, thinking about um, ways of interrogating you know, vocabularies, historical vocabularies that could be used to interrogate racial categories and so on today, um, I found my sort of partners in conversation in the arts, typically among journalists and so on. And uh, I was um, fortunate enough to be involved in um, writing about the art exhibition of a Penang Bong artist named Wong Hoi Chong, who was dealing at the same time with questions about race by, by um, asking about what was indigenous and non-indigenous. You know? so, talking about things like the chili or the tomato or, and thinking about, uh, well, these things that are so native, so indigenous, um, actually have a foreign origin, right? So raising questions about indigeneity and, and belonging versus outsider status. And I was drawn to that and I started, uh, I wrote um, catalog essays in conjunction with um, his exhibitions and that actually, it actually, to his credit, he invited me into to, to write for a broader public. Um, um, I think, I don't know if that I have a formula for uh, engaging the state, but I think one, of, one thing that's informed my career is to uh, henceforth, right, following that initial encounter with the arts, uh, and now that's really part of my practice. I really don't think, and, and I mentioned my, the institutional history because I think the practice has emerged from the context of this country, right? We don't, we don't have, we have one university with a major history department. It's not particularly open to ideas and open to, to um, the kind of innovations we are thinking about, actually two history departments. and. Uh, really some of the more exciting things about the work of dealing with history is happening outside of universities. So for me, it became very important to um, think about the practice of history as something that doesn't involve institutional, professional historians alone, but con conversations and an openness to a range of other people. And uh, I think that's one of the 
ways by which uh, challenges can be posed. Um, so we come back to the question of television, and you know, and Rebecca, I I know you've been on television, you, and you you said interestingly this morning that you you want to speak to an intelligent but uninformed public. That was your your expression. You had a ruder expression, but we we dropped it. No, my, my, my expression was un was intelligent but ignorant. Yes. But we decided. Right, we yes. decided to move ignorant into uninformed. Yes. Okay, so so let me put it this way: television is producing and reproducing, maybe in more fragmented ways, or in, not in fragmented, in fragments. They they deploy historical fragments through kind of conversations about the present. It seems to. That seems to be the way. And very rarely in current affairs do we reach to a historian to help us understand a, a conflict, for instance, right? But, but, but you were. And I'm wondering, what it was it that you were doing as a historian in the fast-paced formats of television uh, to kind of give, give a, a historical uh, perspective on something that's current? My strategy, and this is perhaps why I'm not more popular amongst the television crowd, is to refuse to confirm what we think we know, is to challenge uh, us to think differently about what we think we might know. And uh, I used to be, when Al Jazeera America was still a going concern, I used to be their China person. And so I, I appeared, uh, a good deal on Al Jazeera America. Um, and they had interviewers who were incredibly flexible and limber, and they actually listened to what you said, and they would respond in real time to what you said so that you actually had a conversation with the interviewer rather than just answering in a set of uh, soundbite comments. And that was really exciting. It was fun. I mean, it was hard to fit what I wanted to say within, you know, the, the, the time frames that they gave you. But nevertheless, there was a real conversation there. The several other times I've been a talking head, I've failed miserably because they weren't, it wasn't really a conversation and I don't know how to, uh, to, to uh, be congenial um, to, in, a, in that kind of situation. And so, um, I think that to be a historian with a um, at, with a with a real sense of uh, a critique of the present, um, you have to refuse to confirm what people think they know, and that's been um, uh, not a great strategy for being on CNN or any other uh, mainstream uh, venue. So well, I, I think you joined Noam Chomsky in being kind of like sidelined, so, you know, but where's the badge of honor? Yeah. Okay, I, I want to actually turn to the audience now, because I, I, I do think, um, you know, we see this everywhere, and Sumit's work, of course, you know, uh, the work that you've done on Pramodia as a kind of novelist who deals with history, uh, and then who suffered uh, quite, uh, quite tragically from uh, you know, uh, for, for doing that, right? Um, and then, of course, we see all over the world historians, professional historians who are public intellectuals also being attacked in, you know, in India and so on and so forth. Uh, so I, I thought maybe we could turn to the audience now. I mean, 
for your uh, for your kind of sense of where history is, where historians are, where the media might be, it could be any of these questions. But uh, I'll open it up now and see if we have a couple of questions. Otherwise, I will continue on in my merry way and ask the questions I want to ask. Uh, can we get um, the lady in the second row? Is that? Thank you. Um, so my name is Zardina. I have a question to Rebecca. Um, so um, you study insurgent history, and I'm just wondering if in the course of you studying insurgent history, what is the role of contemporaneous understanding of history play um, in the these radical openings of future reimagination, and whether whether um, whether or not the mass understanding of history at that time influence uh, the fact that you know if if these future reimagination take on you know. You know, with Ding Ling's history, for example, with her radical reimagining of China through a gendered perspective, um, was you know how did the the mass at the time react to her um, proposal, and uh, whether that depends on the, our understanding of history, given the muddled perspectives and narratives of history at that time as well. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I think that the question of reception is a particularly um, impossible one to actually uh, answer. Uh, you know, with somebody like Dingling, uh, uh, there, there was, she was clearly uh, impactful. She clearly was one of the major writers of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, when the market decided what popularity looks like, she competed well in the marketplace. When politics decided what was popular, she at times competed when she, uh, you know, well in the in that marketplace. I don't know that we can think about. I mean, the masses um, in the 30s and 40s, the masses were pretty massively illiterate, so <laughs> it's. Uh, Hard to talk about the masses, and uh, it's not that it's not that uh, you know it's not that regular common you know folks didn't have their sense of what the past looked like and what the pa how the past weighed on their present. Um, it's just that it's it's hard to assess what that what what that what that meant at the time. Rebecca, can I take that question further today? when in fact people on Facebook and discussing history and so on and so forth, how important is it that we look at the reception end of it? That professional historians have an impact versus politicians have an impact when they address certain historical questions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to, um, you know, I've chosen my, let's say, I've chosen my arena to be in the arena of uh, you know, universities, education, maybe high schools, and so on. I don't try to influence policy. I don't. I'm not fond of talking to people in this in any state uh, at a, at any point. You know. So, um, and I've already said I'm not successful at media stuff. So uh, that's not really my venue either. 
And so um, I think it is, I, I, I admire people who are able to um, engage in a public manner that is not pandering to a public, uh, to, a, to, a, to a, a simplified understanding of the world. Um, I, I, I think it's important to, um, to, to, to provide correctives as much as we can to incorrect ideas, as it were. Um, but uh, I don't know how to compete at the level of, um, of social media and, and the, the, inst the instantaneousness of Twitter and all the rest. I don't do that stuff. I mean, I do Facebook just to keep you know, in touch with friends from afar, but I don't, I don't, I can't do, I can't, I, I, I can't do that. I just, I, and I, I, I admire people who can, but I can't. I think we, we do uh, exist on Facebook to avoid social oblivion, but okay. So there's, um, sorry, <laughs> there's Ray in the back. If you could just hold up your hand a little longer because they, they sometimes can't figure out. Uh, no, invite later. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask a, a bit about the, the difference between your methodologies, uh, Rebecca and Sumit. Um, the, in, in your introductions, there was this, this sense that um, Sumit likes to be in the weeds. You like to re really get at some of these quotidian details of your own history and other people's histories. And Rebecca, you, the sense that you gave it at, at that moment in time was, was, was one of you know, the consolidations of intellectual history, uh, not getting into the weeds, but letting other people who have gotten into the weeds feed, in, in a sense, your uh, larger scope that you, you were mapping out. So, so I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about, and, and I've, I've simplified your world, <laughs> but, but if you can, now complexify what I've, uh, the, simpli the simplicity that I've given The simplification you. is very productive, yeah. I expect. Okay, so. No, thank you. I, thank, thank you. I, I think that was a nice um, indication of um, a variety of approaches and the varieties of approaches that can exist among historians. Um, and another historian friend thinks of the discipline as the, perhaps the most flexible in terms of, say, interdisciplinary conversation. Um, I talked up the, the, the intricate details, but perhaps not enough what um, I aim to do with them. Well, you have a favorite line, which is, uh, later we'll get into the details. I've heard, I've heard you say that so many times now. Today? Uh, yes, at least twice. <laughs> Sorry, it's just, uh, we, we, had a, we had a plan about some of the things we would talk about, but that's not always, it doesn't have to stick that, stay that way. Um, but I thought I said, you, you did say that. I, I, I went into details in a way that, that uh, is quite different from Rebecca. And I think that's true. I, I, uh, I think it's actually quite necessary for the kinds of questions that interest me. So, um, conceptually, besides states, the kind of literature and thinking that um, a lot of the work that I'm doing is working against is this notion that emerges with modernization theory, something, you know, something called race relations, and race relations emerges 
from the 40s, 50s, especially in the 50s onwards. And it's left a really strong legacy in especially developing states to the point where that I think um, uh, in, institutions would, were, were created uh, around race relations. So um, race relations and ideas of race that were perpetuated after colonialism in independent states rested on clean, ideas about society that rested on clean categorizations. So I work with the integrity, I work with the, um, tr to, to try to tell the stories of cultural complexity through the integrity, but with the final purpose of, my, my challenge then is to say, how does this all matter then in terms of a challenge to to racialize categories, right? So I try to then, I suppose, um, the work is about creating a different vocabulary from one that rests on clean, neat categories. Does that make sense? And Rebecca. Yeah, I just want, very briefly, I just want to say, I came out of, um, I, my bachelor's degree was in literature, in Russian literature, and I came out of um, uh, a, a literary background. And so I've been uh, mostly in my discussion, in my study of history, I've been mostly very, very invested in and interested in uh, textual analysis. And so I get into the weeds to the extent that I get into texts very closely, and I read texts very closely, um, and I pay attention to narrative forms and, and textual forms and so on in that, in that sort of way. I don't, um, I, I'm immensely uh, uh, impressed by people who can uh, go into archives and, and, and wade through, you know, endless sorts of documents that don't seem to add up to anything and then they make them add up to something and I find that, you know, very impressive. It's just not what, how I do and how, it's not how I think. I've always posed questions that have been uh, political questions but not po questions of the state. And so I do, um, I do a huge amount of textual analysis and, uh, and that comes out, as I say, it comes out of my former training in, uh, in literature. How, how about the, the, the um, archive of the village? Do you do, you do primary research into the, the quotidian daily life of? No. The, the, okay. yes. Someone's gonna give an example of what, what he I, does. I thought, since I promised detail and I didn't give you enough, but uh, not too much. We wanna hear more from you all, but take the founding figure of this apparently racialized polity, Tunku Abdurrahman, right? He's seen as the father of Malaysia. You, um, and I've been reading his, his own speeches, he's very candid, and also his life trajectory. And um, I'll, keep, I'll keep it short for the moment. He comes from a state in the north called Kedah, not far from here, north of this peninsula, which was much cl more closely aligned to the Thai, uh, to Siamese kingdom at the time. And um, his route would have been, had it not been for a number of personal circumstances, um, he would have ended up becoming a bureaucrat in the Thai civil service. Okay, and he spoke Siamese, he spoke Thai. And Looking into details, I read texts closely too, so those are, that's where you kind of get the cultural detail. 
And you, you look at his own speeches, you see a man who is part Thai Malay, has all this incredible cultural complexity in him, um, write about how he has to reproduce himself in the independent state of Malaysia as a leader of, um, uh, as a, a Malay politician within this ethnicized environment. So he has to get somebody to come and coach him how to speak Malay. He gets somebody to help him dress properly to face the public in Malay. And we can go on and on. So I'll just stop there. I'm very interested in then how, and then how, how come we, how, why is it we can't hold on to this level of detail? And actually, in everyday life in Malaysia and other parts of this region, people do hold on to this level of detail. So now I'm thinking really, it's a certain kind of political discourse uh, within which these kinds of racialized tropes are particularly powerful. And maybe to undermine those, if you want to join me in undermining them, we need to actually keep uncovering these deep archaeologies. Okay, can I just ask? No, okay. okay. Just let's, give, let's broaden the talk. Uh, I want to ask Kanan to, because I had already signaled something about India, and because we had that whole Babri Masjid uh, you know, um, decision recently, and it very it sort of, it, it, uh, the implications for history and, and what history means and all that is uh, major. I wonder if you could just say something, Kanan, about where India is in terms of dealing and resistance against the kind of deployment of history for the Hindutva uh, project. I know it's a big one. It's like asking you to do a lecture right now. I know, but, but if you could just say a little bit. No, I, I have absolutely no trading in history at all. I can only speak as a journalist and as a reader. Um, I think um, um, the project of rewriting history into an Hindutva history in, in modern day politics is focused on completely dismantling uh, Nehru as a personality. So dismantling Nehru. Nehru. So that's the focus of the entire group, if you have to put it very shortly, is to dismantle his legacy, to question every aspect of his, uh, you know, intellectual and political uh, achievements. That is what is uh, major, majorly happening now. Almost the entire political leadership of the Hindutva and the mob on tweets across the world. Every day morning they get up and tweet something against Jawaharlal Nehru. And that starts the day for them. So that is the major thing because uh, Nehru at, at a point in history when there was immense amount of hatred among Hindus and Muslims and all that, it was very clear in what he wanted. He wanted a secular state. Absolutely, the constitution, there is no, no difference between uh, citizens of India. That constitution still holds despite all this. That uh, they, the constitution does not differentiate between any citizen of India in any way, uh, man or woman or whatever race or whatever class, whatever caste. That was the creation of, uh, they see as the creation of uh, Nehru and the social transformation that kind of a constitution brought out. Not fast enough, very slowly. But even that is something they can't take. They really want to get hold of, keep control of the state in a way that maintains status quo and continues the rule of uh, the upper caste, elite, uh, Brahminical politics. I wonder, Rebecca, if you can comment on this, because it seems that there are patterns around the world, right? And so if you had to take down a Nehru in order to, uh, to uh, promote a particular Hindu version of India, 
Uh, in China, you, you mentioned in your lecture the way in which the May 4th movement is now being read much more narrowly, uh, and that its anti-imperialist uh, import is now either marginalized or forgotten. Could you speak to that? I mean, what are the strategies, as it were, to change the way we think about ourselves and our worlds in, in say, a place like China or America? Well, I mean, in China, the, uh, the current, um, I mean, they've had to uh, disavow Maoism by embracing Mao. And that's been an incredibly difficult line to to uh, to disavow Mao by embracing no him. disavow Maoism Mao. by embracing Mao and Maoism being the form of socialism that was um, that Deng Xiaoping and so on in the 1980s then uh, uh, repudiated in favor of market economy and and so on. Um, uh, and the you know the, the the rise of private property, the rise of uh, and uh, the, the 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 repudiation of socialism more generally, but nevertheless Mao has to stand as, at the at the narrative origin of the legitimacy of the Communist Party's rule in China, and so how do you disavow Maoism by embracing Mao? Or how do you embrace Mao without uh, without endorsing anything that Mao actually stood for? And you know, so Xi Jinping, uh, the current president, the current you know uh, 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 leader of China, uh, wears a Mao suit, and everybody says, "Ah, he's a new Mao." Well, no, he's really not. He's he's enacting, he's performing an empty ritual of Mao without of uh, by 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 of course posing in every way possible as the um, antithesis to uh, anything that Mao stood for. And so China has been involved in this narrative um, uh, gymnastics for, uh, uh, for some time now because they can't like entirely disavow Nehru. I, I, you know, they can't do that kind of thing. They have to um, what stands at the origin of the legitimacy of the one of the of the party state of one party rule in China is uh, the Maoist re is Mao's revolution and 1949, and uh, and so that they have to embrace that. And yet, what 1949 stood for was um, has to be has to be distanced and disavowed. And they've so every single narrative point. Whether it's May Fourth, whether it's the uh, the only narrative point that has not had to change very substantively has been um, the uh, war against Japan, the War of Resistance against Japan, 1937, 1945, um, and that war. Uh, can remain relatively, and that's why it plays endlessly on, on TV. Uh, on, uh, that's another one of the uh, big uh, TV uh, topics of, of history. But every other narrative point, whether it's 1949, what does 1949 mean in China today? Now it means the rule of the Communist Party, not the transition to socialism. Um, what does 1959 mean? What does 1969 mean? All of these moments.